With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and, and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show... You kind of have to lean into crisis to find opportunity. I agree with you. And a million people actually said, this is the best thing that ever happened to you. You just don't know it yet. Even now, four months in, I totally see that because I see the growth trajectory that I'm on. I brought the majority of the team with me. I've got the audience coming back, but I left everything that I didn't like about what I was doing before behind. You have to not try to edit what you're interested in and who you are. I had to let myself outgrow the old show and move into what I'm doing now with the neuroscience and the persuasion, the influence. If I didn't grow into this, I would have to sort of freeze myself in time. If you're doing this right, you're creating a connection with your audience that's so strong that their interests evolve with yours. They're looking to you for some kind of leadership in this area. What do you feel are the main things you've learned in 900 episodes of talking to your heroes? So, Jordan Harbinger, we haven't updated in quite a bit. Now we're updating right here on the podcast. I know, it's fun. It's good. Well, it's the only way to get a hold of you is to book a show and fly out to New York and then sit here and do one in person. Well, I'm so glad you did this because originally um, we're doing, we're, we're taping this on, what day is it, May 14th? 15, I think. 15. 15. So, oh yeah, 15. So originally from May 13th through 15th, I was going to try to break the Guinness Book of World Records for longest consecutive podcast in a row. Whoa. And held by what? Corolla or something or? Uh no, there was some Spanish Oh, really? radio show. Uh, <laughs> okay. and I decided not to do it, but I ca- and I and I had already booked like let's say 50 people or lined up 50 people and you and my last guest are the only two I kept. Oh wow, made <laughs> so, the cut. Wow. Yeah, you made the cut. 48 so, cancellations. That's a tough one. Yeah, so 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 look, first things first. I've been such a fan. You've done, I don't know, like a thousand episodes of your old podcast, old show, yeah. The Art of Charm. You were one of the first podcasts. When did that start? 2006? Yeah, 2006. There were 800 or so shows in iTunes at that time. And I remember all all throughout, like even back when I was starting, I mean, I was a fan of your podcast. I remember even talking to you about some of the economics of the business, like podcast networks and if I should do one or three and some of your experiences when you went up to, I think you were doing... 
forgot how many you were doing then. I do three a week now. I might have been doing two before. Or no, I think you were doing, doing three then. Still doing three? Okay. Yeah. And we just compare notes and stuff, but we've and then we've run into each other at, at so many conferences and we've been on each other's podcast yeah. several times. But now you're not doing the art of charm. That's right. After twelve years, and you're doing the Jordan Harbinger show. Yeah, it's been a lot. Yeah, eleven and a half years. So, so I like rounding up, though. I'm fine with that. I think a lot of people get in the weeds when something traumatic like this happens. I'll say it's traumatic because yeah. you've been doing it for twelve years, three times a week. Yeah. And I think people, a lot of people get in the weeds. They start thinking, I don't know the story at all. We haven't talked about it. the plan. Wants to talk about it here, but uh, and among other things. But I think a lot of people, when something traumatic like that happens, they get in the weeds, there's lawsuits, they get angry, they get frustrated, there's people getting fired, there's money lost, mm-hmm. there's huge things. But you just, it seems like, from what I could see on the other you just picked up and you started the Jordan Harbinger show. Yeah, I, yeah, it was interesting because my reaction, I went through maybe some of the stages of grief you know, that people go through where first I was like, what? This can't be happening. Well, you know? what, what did happen? So what happened was I was growing disillusioned more and more with what was some of the stuff that was happening over at the old company. And I, I can't, unfortunately, I can't get into too many details on that because it's still ongoing nasty legal split. And then me and the vast majority of the team got fired and left the company. And now I work with basically every single person that I worked with before, only we do the Jordan Harbinger show now. So that was very fortunate that I was able to take the team with me. So I didn't know this. The Art of Charm was owned by some other company? I just had partners. Mm -hmm. And the partners and I had negotiated an amicable split, and then that did not happen. So when that didn't, it, we negotiated it three weeks later, everyone got fired. And it's like, well, why did we bother negotiating it if that was what was going to happen? And so I just, it, instead of, well, fortunately, like I said, I didn't have to go by myself. So I was able to bring the rest of the team because they'd also gotten the boot. So I, I left with all of the talent, which is really, really awesome. And that's kind of illustrated in large part. In fact, it has been my network and relationships that have saved my butt the whole time. So I brought the team with me. All the f- friends and relationships I made over 11 years, like yourself, have all really been awesome and rallied with me to help launch the Jordan Harbinger show. So the audience is growing really quickly, which is great. But it ha- it was traumatic. It was traumatizing because I'd spent 11 years building that brand. Yeah, and but I think more importantly, yes, the Art of Charm had a brand, but nobody would just say the Art of Charm and say, oh, who's the podcaster again? Right. Like I, I think you built your... I don't think there is such a thing as... Uh, you know, real brands in the podcasting world. I think people know yeah. the people. I mean, maybe for something like On Being or Hardcore History, like I know the people who who do them because I follow podcasting, but I think those podcasts have brands or Serial or Startup. Right. Um, but for, yours is an interview show, so we know yeah. after a thousand episodes or how many did you do? Nine hundred sixteen. Yeah, nine hundred something. Yeah. So we know it's you're the guy doing the interview, Jordan right. Harbinger, and you everybody knows your background. Everybody knows you know wh- who you interview and what type of people. So I don't. I I imagine the biggest part. The biggest problem is, of course, people subscribe on their podcast app to podcasts. And so when you release a new podcast, those people who subscribe automatically get the download. Right. And they have to now find you again. Yeah. And so you have to rebuild the subscribers. That's been a pain in the butt. But what was really fortunate was people have found us in large numbers. And so you see this really dedicated core that moved over like in a week. Mm-hmm. And then you see thousands of people move over every 
week or every month, depending on how often you're taking measurements. I take measurements like every day, which is meaningless. Can but you if, see? You can't see though how many subscribers specifically. No, but you can just see the traffic going up. Yeah. In in a very obvious way. And did you try to do like what did you did you try to do anything special? It feels like you just kind of continued your show. But I just, just continued the show. Yeah. So what I did is I called my network podcast one and I said, "What do I do right now?" I called a lot of people to ask for help. I was like, "What do you?" And I'm sure you've had this problem also when your businesses have, I've read a lot of your writing, of course, so when things happen, I call people for advice and go, what do you think I should do? Especially people who've been through that stuff. And one of the things that Norm Pattis over at Podcast One said is he said, look, I've been managing radio talent for like 45 years, 40 years. You should pick up and continue like nothing ever happened. You have to say that nothing ever happened, but you shouldn't just reel back or take a break or go to Hawaii. Don't do any of that stuff. He's like, just keep going. And so he was able to take all of the sponsors from the old show that he had sold and just bring them to the new show immediately. Well, what's interesting, like you look at um, like Howard Stern obviously moving from CBS to Sirius or Opie and Anthony splitting up and, you know, Anthony's got the Anthony Cumia network. Yeah. Uh, even though these were kind of traumatic changes for these people, it, that advice applied. Like they, yeah. they're, you kind of have to lean into crisis to find opportunity. I agree with you. Yeah, because uh, Cam Harold, mutual friend of ours, I think, yeah. and a million other people actually, but he was the first one said, "This is the best thing that ever happened to you. You just don't know it yet." And of course, in the moment, I was like, "Okay, I can't wait until I feel that way instead of feeling like crap." But even now, four months, not even four months in, I totally see that. I don't necessarily feel it every day, but I totally see that because. I see the growth trajectory that I'm on. I brought the majority of the team with me, everyone that I needed. I've got the audience coming back, but I left everything that I didn't like about the what I was doing before behind. So now it's just a matter of rebuilding and remagnetizing some of the audience and getting new fans, which is happening in a way sort of automatically. There's, there's a, a lot of issues I want to hit as always with you, yeah. uh, but like what are the things you didn't want to deal with? Um, I'm asking as a fellow yeah. podcaster. So let's see. What, I'm I'm not supposed to say anything that could put paint the other company in a bad light, of course. But there is a lot of there were differences. Here's a big one. There's a huge difference in the way that I wanted the brand to go. So the, towards the end of the Art of Charm, when I was interviewing there, I would have on neuroscientists, all star athletes, authors, people that I really respected and admired. But the other guys seemingly wanted to just be more sort of dating and relationshipy, And I thought, I'm married. I don't care about this. I'm not interested in this. The brand was embarrassing for me. You know, I always had to say, in fact, Dan Harris, who I think you probably know. Yeah, yeah, very well. He didn't want to come on the show originally. He said no, and he canceled last minute the first time I tried to have him on the show. And he told me today, he finally admitted it, that he canceled because he was like, this brand sucks. I don't want to be a part of it. He came on the show a year or so later, and now, you know, here I am on his show. But, he didn't want to do it. And I had so many rejections like that from guests. And I always had to get these warm introductions from people that they really trusted that. And they always said, you should go on this show. It's not, it's not like what it sounds like. It's not as bad as it sounds. It's not about this. It's not about dating. It's not about relationships. So why am I fighting my own brand? But you know, I you know? never really thought of the Art of Charm as about dating. I don't know why. Was it that brand? It I was, think it was that brand a long time ago. A long time ago. But if you just heard that name and you'd never heard of the show, you might be like, eh, I don't know if I want to put, you know, Condoleezza Rice doesn't want to go on that show. Because mm -hmm. it's just, why, if you're looking at two media appearances and you can go on James Altucher and you go, yeah, that's a good show. Or I can go on the show, The Art of Charm. One's decidedly less risky than the other, right? And it's the one that, that you have. So, 
getting rid of Knocking that risk wood. so far until yeah so far that's less risky so that was always holding me back and i thought why is this why am i fighting against my own brand to get the kind of talent that i want on the show and i had to shill programs and products and stuff like that that i just was not interested in and so it was good to sort of leave what i consider to be sort of that dead weight in terms of my personal brand behind so why do a podcast at all I love it, man. I love interviewing. I love the contact, the in-depth. I love the prep, reading the book from the guest. I love the connections. Everything about it I like. You know, I love interviewing. And, and uh, but, there, but I sort of wonder if, like you see YouTube, you know, people, people do shows or webisodes or web series or even interview shows on YouTube. Some of those get like millions and millions of I views. Know, I know. The numbers just dwarf the the podcast universe. It's true. It's true. Like the it, entire universe could be one YouTube video. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I looked at that and I thought about that for a long time because I for years I thought, what if I just had started with YouTube and I never cared about podcasting? Everyone knows how to play a YouTube video. I would have been one of the top YouTubers because I would have started from the very beginning because I was already podcasting then. I could have just switched to video. But then if you think about the cost of production, it's a lot higher. You have to have your guest in person unless you're just doing webcam stuff. So that's the, already a huge hurdle. There's also a lot more competition for attention, not even interviews, but attention. And whenever I get somebody enough whiskey in them and I go, let's talk about your interview YouTube channel, whenever I get the dirt, the, the numbers are not good. The numbers really? are not good. No, it's, it's like, oh, this video got... 738,000 plays, but the average length of, the, of a watch was like two minutes and 38 seconds, but the video is 56 minutes long. And I'm mm. going, oh. Mm. So most people aren't even getting anywhere close to through this whole video. And then other big YouTubers that I know, I know guys that have millions of views, and I go, well, man, you must be crushing it. And they're like, no, I have a job so that I can pay my rent. Mm. And I thought, you have millions of views on your videos, and or they're doing it full time, but it's like them and a free or unpaid intern because that's all they can afford. Well, I thought I, I I'm totally ignorant of all the numbers. So uh, on a YouTube video, there's like five different possibilities for ad placement with millions of views. You would think. You would think, but YouTubers in general, from what I understand, unless just my friends are just doing it horribly wrong, are getting like four dollars CPM and dropping. Mm. Whereas podcasters, we're getting like twenty five to thirty five CPM and rising because yeah. people listen. Something like, I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but I'm sure you saw this. Something like 80 to 90% of podcast listeners listen to almost every episode and listen to the whole thing, which is unheard of. And advertisers, this is, I think this study came out earlier this year, advertisers, this was in Wired, it's the best use of ad dollars that advertisers have been spending is on podcasts. Really? Yeah. So there's a lot more podcast money coming in now too. And it's harder. It's harder to build the audience. But it's not just because discoverability is bad. I used to think, oh, discoverability is bad. It's hard to share a podcast, you know, these kind of things. That's all true. But the other reason that it's hard is because people are giving you an hour of their time two, three times a week, in my case and in your case. And these are educated professionals. The demographic is more lucrative. Most podcast listeners, if you look at the demographic of the Jordan Harbinger show, it's like 92% college educated, 86% make over 50K. That is... There's no other demographic that is that educated unless you're looking at an individual magazine like The Atlantic or something like that. What do you think of the trend towards, I mean, there's a lot more kind of highly scripted, highly produced podcasts. Yeah. I mean, it used to be all interview shows. Sure. And then Startup came around, then Serial, and then suddenly now the top podcasts are all like highly produced. 
Yeah, I don't want to do that. I thought about it's that It's like too. hard work. It's so much work. And you know, I feel like I wouldn't learn as much. You don't. You don't. You spend... There's another thing that I, I investigated in, in depth. And I remember talking with somebody who worked at, what, not WNYC, but some other sort of... It was maybe the Philadelphia station. They'd worked there a while ago. They told me they had 13 people working on one show, and they were all full-time. Uh, one was an intern and was unpaid. The other twelve, the other dozen people working on that show were all full time and paid, and they were not quite able to do one episode every week because they just couldn't. It was impossible. So they did like thirty six episodes a year. Hmm. How is uh, you and I create three a week, or do you do three a week? Now? I do three, but yeah. I'm, I'm about to move to two. Okay, so I do three a week. I've got my producer. I've got my show notes writer. I have Jen. But if I really had to, I could probably do it with one or two other people, or I could get rid of my show notes and just do it with two people and have a scheduler. And I would be fine. I would be able to keep up this pace. There's other shows, these highly produced shows, they need a dozen people full-time, and they still can't even get one episode a week out. How is that even possible? Some of that's just terrible management. That's just like an, a public radio thing where yeah. everybody works for, maybe they all work for 40 minutes a day. I, I don't understand. No, but I think the, I think the business model there is... Uh, they're trying to sell it as a TV show or a movie. Yeah. So I think that's the only business model. Like Gimlet, I think, has sold uh, maybe three podcasts as TV shows. And uh, you know, remember that podcast, uh, Finding Richard Simmons? I think that yeah. got sold up, packaged as a TV show. Yeah. So I think that's the business model. So the business model is sold as a TV show. That's great. Look, I wouldn't say no if someone was like, hey, you should do the Jordan Harbinger show and you should do it on TV. That'd be great. But it's not really the be-all, end-all for me. I'd rather... I like doing more and putting more work into each guest than to be like, all right, let's spend three days working on the musical bed for the the intro and the transitions. I'm just not interested in that stuff. Well, now, you are on, are you still on Sirius XM? I was for a while, I'm not anymore. Okay, because mm -hmm. you, were you doing both simultaneously? Like, I was at one time, yeah. And But you just decided it just wasn't worth it. Is yeah, the audience not there for that? The audience wasn't there for that back then when I left, and also, I just, you have to be in studio, you have to take callers, and for me, I don't want to be in the same place every Friday at 6 p.m. or whatever it is. I don't want to be in the same place with a studio in L.A. or New York at that time. With the Jordan Harbinger show, I can do a bunch of shows in advance and then not do anything for three weeks if I really want to punish myself or if I have to go somewhere. I can do all the episodes in advance. And the only benefit for doing that serious XM is you can take live callers. But I, just, I, I had to decide, do I really want live callers that bad? And the answer was no. So so on this show, I tend to focus on basically peak performers in every industry, sports, the arts, business, whatever. You're a peak performer in the podcasting world. And one thing is after hundreds and hundreds of episodes, you realize, oh my gosh, I've just spoken to all these amazing people who are heroes of mine. Yeah. I've like soaked up so much of what they've said like, what do you feel are the main things you've learned in 900 episodes of talking to your heroes? I know this is like a cliche question, but yeah. I really want to know. <laughs> but I, I've thought about it recently because, of course, people go, what's your favorite episode? That's a bad question, right? Because you have, Yeah, there's no answer. There's no answer. It's like picking your favorite kid. I could, it, I could ask someone, Steve, who's my producer over here, he once asked me what's my worst episode, and I had answers to that. Yeah? But I don't have the answers to the, the, the best. And you had no problem just being like, oh, yeah, I did an episode with so-and-so, uh, and it was terrible? Yeah, like if I don't connect with the person, yeah. there's maybe a lot of reasons why I might not connect with somebody. Yeah. And 
it's not their fault it's necessarily. Not their fault. Yeah. But the best is hard to say because after hundreds and you get so much value out of so many, it's hard to say. What well, it's usually the last one that I did. I feel is the best because that's the one most of my memory. Sure. God, I'm so curious. Who was the worst one? Can I take? Can I ask? I know you already told your audience, but I'm curious. Um, it actually was uh, a comedian, and I've had a lot of comedians on because uh, I'm so into stand-up com- sure. comedy. But this one, I just I won't say who specifically was. It wasn't okay. his fault. It's it's all I take responsibility. It's always my fault. I so, agree with that. So so. I just couldn't figure out how to connect, and I don't know why. I have to re-listen to that and, and figure it out. But that was a big lesson for me: is that I have to take responsibility for those. Yeah. But you to know, your to your question, I'll yeah, I'll answer your question now instead of interviewing you on your own show. One of the things that I learned from all these amazing high performers is that when you're when you're first starting, whenever when anyone's first starting. Usually we overthink everything and then we hear advice from people like you or Seth Godin like, oh, just ship it, get started, just do it. And you'll learn along the way. And I agree with that. And then there's this huge middle ground, which for me lasted like, I don't know, seven plus years or something, maybe six. And where you go, I don't have to overthink this, but that sort of overthinking turned out to be read the book, prepare. I was like, I don't have to do this. I'm good enough now where I could throw the fundamentals out the window. And then as I got better, I realized, oh, wait a minute. Reading the book, doing six to eight hours of prep for each guest, that's what professionals do. Howard Stern, always super prepared. All these really good interviewers, generally super prepared. Uh, some people do no prep, but they think they're getting away with it. I can tell. I, I can tell. And if that's their show, then great. But I, I don't think it's the best way to do I, it. I can totally tell as well. In fact... There's there's so many levels, I would say, now that I've done so many podcasts, there's so many levels of podcasts I can always identify yeah. right away when I'm someone, on someone else's podcast. There are people who do get away with it. Like, let's say, I think Larry King is famous for He is no famous prep. for not preparing, yeah. yeah. He, told, he said that on my show, and he, he said, I never prepare. I read it one sheet in the car on the way. And he goes... He told me at once, and I don't think anybody really knows and I, and about this. And I said quietly to myself, I'm pretty sure a lot of people know about this because you can tell. When he, you know, and I, I love Larry, but sometimes when you got Gary Vaynerchuk and you go, what, did you, what are you doing there on the uh, internet? You know that you don't know what Gary V does and it's a little weird. Right. So, so okay, so you got back to the preparation. So pre- preparation... Key to success. Yeah, the high performers are always the... I've noticed that high performers, they prepare like crazy. They don't go... Shaq doesn't go, I'm good enough at basketball that I don't have to go to practice anymore. Uh, Olympic sprinter doesn't go, I'm already fast. I don't have to keep working out. They don't do that stuff. They don't do that. They realize that keeping at the top of their game and innovating requires them to work harder than everybody else not to then go, I've already developed the skills, I don't have to worry about this. And I think you probably see this with comedy. I'm definitely no comedian, but I don't know that many comedians who go, nah, I'm funny, so I'm done. I'm just going to show up and go on stage. It's funny, because I thought a lot about this recently, because I was, I, I obviously do a lot of podcasts. I was doing stand-up comedy three to up to six times a week. Wow. Um, I also you know, have various business and investments and stuff like that. So I had to start really mathematically figuring out where was my time rational. In other words, if you really look at the time that one should do something to be a peak performer, was it adding up to more hours than a week has? Huh. And so like podcasts, for example, and you you were kind of alluding to it, I would say a, a podcast is about 10 hours per podcast. Yeah. So it's 
It's the preparation. It's, well, it's a little bit the booking, but you have help with that. It's the preparation. It's the getting to the podcast. It's doing it. And then there's some wind down. So all together, production, yeah, yeah, all together was about ten hours of work. Yeah, I would agree with that. Especially and, if, unless they have a book that's ten hours long, and then you got a whole, you got a little bit more in there, right? And so, so uh, if I was doing three podcasts a week, I'm usually um, taping four just to be safe. So that's a forty hour a week right there. Yeah, and then stand up comedy. You, it's like you said, you can't just go up on stage and tell jokes. It's, no, yeah, I wouldn't it, try that. I would say, and I was probably, you know, I don't know, I was taking it very seriously. So I would say it was probably about four hours minimum per appearance on stage for stand-up comedy. And you're only doing it for 15, 10 to 15 minutes, but about four hours of, you know, maybe three hours of preparation, then getting there, going up, and then wind down. And uh, what, do you, what, do you, what is wind down? You know, because for me, when I'm thinking, I would just be done with my comedy and go, oh, thank God that's over. I'm going to have a beer. That, that would be my wind down from doing stand-up comedy. No, because then you, you get down and then you analyze every single like, second. You beat yourself up about every little <laughs> Yeah, thing. or you think like, well, how could I have dealt with this situation better? How could I have told that joke better? How could I have, um, this side of the audience was silent, this side wasn't. Why is that? What, what could I have done to kind of juice them up a little bit more? And then you're just kind of wired because you're excited because you just your adrenaline was pumping on stage. So you can't just sort of like, oh, now I'm going to go to sleep. Yeah. Because yeah, for me, it was, is, it was the one nighttime activity. I'm usually a, not a night owl. So normally I would be asleep at that time. But now I had to stay up extra because I was a little wired. So it's, that's what I, uh, all of that together was the wind down. Sure, that makes sense. It's like yeah. an hour of wind down. So you can't, yeah, you can't just go, all right, I'm going to go do my accounting now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, you're, it's so in your mind. Lost. Yeah. And if you did great, you're thinking it over and over like, oh man, I'm the best now. And if you did horribly, it's like the worst feeling in the world. And so the psycholo- psychology is you have to overcome that feeling of, of shame and horror and, and you have to then analyze what you did wrong. Again, it was, it's always my fault. I see a lot of comedians say, oh, that was a bad crowd. I never assume it's a bad crowd. And so, so yeah, so altogether, my, you know, not counting the ways I actually make money, that was f- 56 hours of work a week on average. And uh, so I had to figure out how to rejuggle things so that the things I love, like podcasting or comedy, I could put my all into, but maybe not do. That's why I'm going from three episodes to two episodes a week. So I could, I could, I could feel good about putting my all into it instead of always feeling frazzled. Yeah. And I think that kind of math is important because you also need to spend time with family and on your relationships. So I have two daughters in a relationship, you're married and you have to, you have to figure out how to juggle all these situations. Why do that to yourself? I know a lot of people like, Oh, I love comedy, but why do that to yourself? It sounds kind of, you're just getting on an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. I would say, uh, and I appreciate the question. You're interviewing me on my podcast. Yeah, shoot. I, it's I, a hard habit to break, man. I, I would say I've learned a lot of different skills in my life where it's like the standard way of learning some hard thing. And this is probably the the hardest skill I've ever had to learn. There's so many micro skills. And you would appreciate this yeah. from co- coming from a podcast called The Art of Charm. You have to basically get up in front of a room of total strangers and... Not only charm them, because likability is actually a more important skill than humor for stand-up comedy, but then you also have to make them laugh. So you have to like- It's a tall and, order. And you know, 
than the average adult person. You know, the average adult, not sorry, the average child laughs 300 times a day. The average adult laughs only five times a day. So you have to get a room full of strangers who have no idea who you are, who kind of half want you to fail. Like, yeah, they're not totally, always on your side. That totally makes sense. And, and you have to get them to do something that they don't normally do, which is laugh. Oh, <laughs> and, man. And so it's incredibly hard. You have to read. It's like you. It's like an X-ray. You have to read everyone in the audience. You have to. You have to write in this really tight way. Like, but you have to be able to make up stuff on the fly just in case things aren't going well. Or what if the person before you had amazingly high? Like, I'm a little bit low energy, and so what if the person before me had amazingly high energy and insulted everyone in the audience? He's an insult comic. Say, I have to. That's different than if the person before yeah. me was just doing material that had nothing to do with the audience. Yeah. So I have to react accordingly. That's a hard. lot of. That's a lot of. There's so much work involved in that. Yeah, because of course you're even if your material is on point and you can read the crowd, you've got to react to what's right before you. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, no. If my material, like Jerry Seinfeld, has the comment that if your set's not going well, always fall back on your material and it'll eventually do well. Um, but A, he's arguably one of the best comedians ever. And B, he doesn't just go up for five minutes or 50 minutes. He goes up for 60 minutes. So he has time to win the crowd back over. If you're going up for 15 minutes and the crowd doesn't know you and the guy before you just ripped through the crowd, I'm just specifically thinking of an incident this past month, uh, just ripped through the crowd, insulting everyone. The audience is on guard now for someone. They want to interact with somebody. Oh, you man. can't If you just do your material... They see you're just t- doing material. You're not just you. You can't act like you're doing material, or else they think they're you're you're just memorizing things. You have to act like you're talking to them. But if the last guy really did talk to them and insulted them, they're expecting a different kind of energy. So, so that's, that's just one example. Yeah. There's, there's seven thousand examples sure. where you have to act differently in each one. So you just gotta love it because obviously you're not paying. You're not gonna retire on comedy. Well, at least not right now. No. Yeah, uh, I never will. I have no. I'm totally goalless. No one hour special for you in the no, future. No, I'm gonna note that because then in three years, when you're like, "Hey, Jordan, I'm doing my one hour special. You want to fly out to New York and see it? I'm gonna have him cue this up and play it back." All right, that's that's good. I yeah. will. That'll play for as the audience like fil- filters into the right. into Radio City Music Hall. Uh, but no, no, I just really like uh, building the skill. I love of I love learning skills that. I that 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 I'm passionate about. It's like learning how to play chess, or learning how to play poker, yeah. or something like that. Or like ping what, pong in your case, right? Yeah, ping pong. But I had to choose because again, it was a time thing. I had to choose between ping pong and comedy. I dropped ping pong. It's you sweat less. Well, actually, I don't know about that. Uh, y- yeah, you sweat less. Maybe, maybe slightly less. <laughs> but you're scared more in comedy. Comedy's terrifying yeah. always. Oh, I'm sure. So, yeah. Uh, I guess some people don't get terrified, but I wasn't at that point yet. Uh, you got halfway to that point. Yeah. You ever try it? Comedy? Yeah. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period and I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, 
I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. 
Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You ever try it? Comedy? Yeah. No, I haven't. I feel like you'd be good at it. People say that, and I'm thinking maybe, but it's kind of like, I don't know. It's scary. It's a little scary. Yeah, but it's not that much. I'll tell you this. You've talked, you've you've talked your way out of terrorist kidnappings. Yeah, it's actually not much different from that. That's true, and you won't die theoretically doing comedy, even if you bomb. Right, right, right. that's true. But here's where it's similar. You have to read your audience, and you have to figure out how to, um, as they, uh, you have to control the frame. So you have to kind of take the frame from the terrorist who has a gun pointed at you to yourself now controlling the dialogue and the narrative of what's happening. And that's how you really get out of those situations. That's funny. We also say it's fra- it is controlling the frame. Unless you you call it that in comedy too. Well, no. I'm bringing that into comedy oh, okay. from your world. Got it, got it. Yeah, <laughs> so, okay. I was like, wow, you use the same terminology. No, because I think comedians... So I'm able to... So one of the tricks of of learning a new skill is what can you borrow from other areas where you've spent 10,000 hours learning? So, you know... Negotiation, reading people, uh, uh, public speaking—you have to do you all. All these are situations where you have to do some frame control, but that really comes from like the dating world to some extent. And but comedians don't view it that way. I think I've never heard one use the word, but I think that phrase happens and it has to happen. On you have to make sure you're in control of the frame if you're the one on the stage. Yeah. If a heckler starts to control the frame, you're dead. Yeah, you're dead meat. Yeah. Have you ever dealt with a heckler? Yeah, yeah. It has to be inevitable, right? Yeah. Especially in New York. Yeah, I've dealt with three in the past two years. So (sighs) how annoying! It's it's annoying. Like sometimes the crowd gets on your side, and you can work with that. But sometimes, you know, you have a short amount of time, and again, you can't, you can't win the crowd back. You have to be very careful. So you just ignore it. Uh, no, that doesn't work either. Doesn't work, right? I've I've tried doing that. It doesn't work. You kind of have to deal with it, and yeah, you have to you have to shut them down in some way, and then ignore it. But right, there's so, various ways of shutting them down. If they're sure. if they're a woman, you can't shut them down in the same way uh, you would shut down a drunk man. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. Definitely not. I, I had one, and then this is his last example, and then we'll move on to this. I had a guy who was just, in the beginning of the set, he was determined to be a heckler. Like, I don't know what was wrong with him, but like one of my jokes had to do with, I was just trying out something relating to Kale and Facebook, how everybody, you know, all these obese people post- Kale and Facebook? Yeah, all oh, these like, people, hey, obese gotcha. people post pictures of Kale, like this is my meal, but they're 
you could tell that's not what they're they they're forgetting the pictures of French fries or whatever. Yeah. But this guy was like right away. I love kale salad, and uh, and then I started talking about um, Adderall, and he's he he like yells. Did you seriously just say that? And I'm like yeah. And he he said, are you making fun of a disease? And I said, look, I'm sorry you got diagnosed with a fake disease, but yeah. And I, then he went around to everybody in the audience who was laughing and said, you better not be laughing at him. And he went outside and complained. Oh, and, he was serious. Yeah, he was serious. Oh, that's he's mental. So, so yeah. at the end of that set, literally half the crowd was yelling at him to shut up. And it, like, I thought there was going to be fist fights. Oh man. And then they're like, yeah, I'd never have that guy back. And like, he owns the comedy club. You get out of here. And, but the thing is what I, I kind of encouraged it at the end. I said, let's all get into a fist fight. Cause I figure if you want comedy, just watch a cat video on YouTube. If you just want to laugh, there's funnier things than standup comedy. I think people go to a standup comedy club cause they want an experience. So they want to see something unusual happen. And this is a perfect case. The lawyer in me wants to recommend that you never suggest everyone getting into a fist fight at your own venue. Yeah, so yeah, you, you, you went from law. I, I feel like everyone I have uh, on this podcast is like basically tried law, being a lawyer and yeah. said, this is not enough. I know Joey Coleman was on before. Yeah, he, he was him, a lawyer. Him and I are both like, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. What's he was so, a criminal defense attorney, I think. Yeah, what kind of lawyer were you? You worked for the government, right? Finan I was a finance attorney for on Wall Street. So I was doing subprime mortgages and financial derivatives. And after you tore down Lehman Brothers That's and right. the world economy, you decided to podcast. I was like, oops, I'm going to go over here and do independent media where I can't you, break anything. Then the financial, was it just like you were going to get out of a job? So you decided, oh, this podcasting thing I did in college and now I, I want to do it again? I started the podcast in law school, kept doing it, ended up on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, economy tanked and I went, all right, I can either spend another year or another five years in a job I don't even want, or I can just double down on the podcast and broadcasting. And that's what I did. So I just didn't get another law job. I just doubled down on doing the show. It's, it's, it's interesting. So you, I feel like everybody comes at podcasting from a different point of view, like what, what they're fascinated by. Like Tim Ferriss, it's always like peak physical performance. Yeah. Um, I think even though you play down kind of the dating and relationship stuff, it's very much related to, your podcast is still very much related to, I'll call it the art of charm, which is charm in a broader sense, which is influence, persuasion, how do you win people over? And I kind of think, you know, what are, again, so step number one, preparation before you meet someone is of course the first, you know, kind of the first way to begin the battle sure. of winning someone over. What's what's another way? Okay, give me my. I want to yeah. know how to charm people. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we've. I don't know how much time we have, but uh, I have no charisma at all, so I need I need uh, a little bit of, of not help. true at all, <laughs> not true at all. You're right though. the The way that I would recommend somebody go about preparing for a podcast is very similar in the way I would recommend somebody go about preparing for an important meeting. So, a lot of people go, "Oh, I got this." interview with the CEO of this company. It's an informational interview. I do want to get a job at this company at some point. What should I do? And I'll go, oh, this guy, well, he wrote a book. He probably had a ghostwriter, but presumably these are his ideas. You should read the book beforehand. And half the time I'll get somebody going, oh man, the whole book? And I'm just thinking, this is a CEO of a company where you want to work eventually. You can't go to Audible and listen to this while you're on the Stairmaster or, or while you're jogging or biking. Give me a break. So I call it the dossier technique. Whenever I go to a conference, 
I will create or have my assistant create little dossiers on the people that I'm meeting. Oh wait, I want to write this down. <clears throat> I like this. All right. The dossier technique. I yeah. like names. Yeah, it's the dossier technique. This is super easy to to begin and and it involves looking at their Wikipedia and if if you know what Wikipedia has there's a talk page on there. And the talk page is where all these like geeky Wikipedia editors argue about what should go in the Wikipedia article. You ever seen this? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's because a treasure trove. When w- during those periods where people are like upset at me for some reason or other, that's yeah. when big people take out huge parts of my page and there's arguments and yeah. Anyway, but yeah, those are treasure troves because if you look at the Wikipedia, you're finding this sort of spit polished, editor approved, or just whatever's currently on the page that day. But if you look on the talk page, you can see people saying. Oh well, I removed the part about James speaking at West Point because they took the video offline. And then someone else is like, "Well, I want to put it back because he spoke there. I don't care if the video's offline." Then somebody writes, "I don't think we should be encouraging bad behavior." This, by the way, is not true. So if you're listening or watching this, I'm making this example up. But I don't want to encourage bad behavior. You know, after what James did at that school. And then you go, "Oh, what, what, what was that?" So then you got to dig in social media or maybe message those people and go, hey, what was this thing that happened? Yeah. And so you get these stories that you would never get if you just looked at the Wikipedia page or the person's LinkedIn or the person's Facebook profile. So you got to find the dirt. And I also, if possible, will talk with that person's friends if we have mutual friends. More so for the interview, but if I'm meeting someone, I'll do the same thing if it's an important meeting. So when I had Mike Rowe on the show from Dirty Jobs... I found, by random coincidence, his college roommate. And I said, tell me a micro story. And he was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. But I will say that him and I got into some stuff, and I know he won't mind this particular example. But they wouldn't give me any real... Not, I wasn't really looking for any real dirt, but he was very sensitive about that, which I respect. But he gave me a story about him that sort of tangentially involved micro. And that was really cool. No other interviewer has ever gotten that story with a Mike Rowe mm. as a guest. And that, that is, that's that extra work that you put in. And uh, it, this helps a lot, if, regardless of whether you're doing an interview or not. If you go to a conference and you look up someone's personal interest, Dossier Technique's really good for this. You look up someone's personal interest, you cut through all the noise. So if I'm speaking at a conference and someone comes up and they're in the line or whatever and they're like, I like your show, that's great. I really appreciate that. I love talking with those, those folks. But if somebody two weeks before the conference messages me and says, hey, I know you went to North Korea four times. I found this interesting bit of trivia or article or, or knowledge. What do you think of this? Then when I see them at the conference, they're the North Korea guy. They're not just a line of people that heard me speak that day. Right. It's almost like they're at the level of acquaintance at that right. point. Right. So. so you can break through that. So when I was teaching a group of scientists a few years ago, and they go, well, when we go to conferences, our our uh, heroes wasn't the word they use, but the, the people they admire, they ignore us because these are PhDs that have written 27 papers over the course of their career. We're PhD candidates. They don't care about us. And I said, all right, find the guy that plays squash or racquetball or whatever and message him three weeks before the conference and go, hey, look, you want to get a game in before your talk? You're going to find some takers. And then you're the racquetball partner. You're not PhD candidate number 78. I agree with this very much. Like my, or one of the first jobs I got in the hedge fund industry many years ago, I read the the, the hedge fund manager's 1962 PhD thesis wow. about, you know, using statistics to model the markets. And, uh, you know, 
found issues I wanted to talk about in it, and he was he was he was kind of blown away. So, he was like, "Oh, I get to defend my thesis again after thirty years. Thanks, buddy." So, but but it it worked. Of course, it worked. Yeah, yeah. nobody's read that thesis since he wrote it. Yeah. So so that kind of stuff works. It's, I have many examples, but that's like the one of the most. I I've literally sold a company because of of this technique. I believe that. Yeah, and people will argue and they'll go, "That's so much work. You had to go and find this PhD thesis, and then you had to read it, then you had to find issues with it. You already had to understand it well enough." The whole point is there's not a there's not very much traffic on that last mile. So if I want to do a better interview than anyone else, I don't have to go. How? What kind of creative, cool question that they've never been asked? Do I have to think about? It? I don't have to lay out on my roof deck for seven hours thinking of clever questions. I just have to read their book now that they have and the book that came before it, and I've already done more work than ninety nine point nine percent of any other interviewer that they're going to talk to that year. I, I would say the most common comment I get from guests is, and this is not from every guest, but the most common comment I get from guests is. Uh, I can't believe you read the book. Nobody else did. Yeah, exactly. So, so that works. So, uh, unless they've been on your podcast, then right? You, then you and then they go, read you and book. James are the only people that read the book, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so, and it helps too if their books are like seven hundred pages because right. I know that no one else is going to read yeah, it. Yeah, people crap out after two hundred. So, so okay. So, so what Robert Cialdini would call persuasion. Yes. You know, you're calling the the dossier technique, but uh, what's What's the you know and again I know these this is the cliche question but it's kind of like we're wrapping up the art of charm here sure you know after nine hundred episodes I really want to know what you what you learned I know this has been such a a, a a a fascination for you yeah another thing that I've learned this is maybe a little bit tangential to the topic but what I've learned is whenever you do something whenever you create something for a group of people like your comedy or this show or my new show the Jordan Harbinger show. The audience, you don't have to cater to the audience directly. You have to be an advocate for the audience. In other words, you have to ask the questions they want to know. You have to earn every minute of their attention and their time, or they'll they'll leave you for something better, and rightfully so. But people are afraid to change their brand around, and this is one of the fundamental disagreements I had with my in my last business, because they're afraid they're going to lose something. So let's say that you wanted to start talking more about finance, just or or some sports or something like that. You can do that. And there's going to be a certain percentage of your audience that's really going to enjoy that because they really like you, they identify with you, they relate to you. You don't have to worry about alienating or losing the other portion of the audience because you have to if you're trying to keep everyone happy, it's impossible. And the other thing is that if you want the people that are really going to resonate with you, you have to not try to edit what you're interested in and who you are. So I had to let myself, and I struggled with this for years, I had to let myself outgrow the old show. Because by trying to pretend or feign interest in some of these other topics and not move into what I'm doing now with the neuroscience and the persuasion, the influence and things like that, if I didn't grow into this, I would have to sort of freeze myself in time at age 28, 29, 32, whatever. Yeah, and, and again, I've I've been through this on a couple of different occasions, uh, but particularly with as my interests change, I bring on the people I'm, who I'm most fascinated by right. and whatever my interest is, and I get like obsessively interested in things, so those are the people I want to interview. And this is a great yeah. format to call someone up and say, hey, sit down over here, and I'm going to ask you any question I want for an hour. So, but I do... Get the occasional email like, "Oh, why do you have let's say let's say stand up comedy was a recent interest? Why do you have so many comedians on now? I'm sick of it. 
Like you do lose a little bit, but overall, you know, you gain because people want to see what's he interested yeah. in now. Yeah, you gain. And also people, if they're creating that, if you're doing this right, you're creating a connection with your audience that's so strong that their interests evolve with yours. They're looking to you for some kind of leadership in this area. Yeah, and they want to also see, like you always, it's like you say, you want to try to uh, bring the conversation, not down, but you want to try to bring the conversation to areas that are applicable and relatable to everyone. Sure. So if I'm talking to Joey Coleman about business and his techniques for business, what we just had a podcast, I bring it to how his techniques are used for relationships or negotiation or marriage or whatever. So <laughs> there's lots of ways to, to play with things. Speaking of this, so to, to more directly answer your question, what I also learned throughout this and through the meta example of what I'm going through now with the whole rebrand and doing the Jordan Harbinger show and the new company, which is Advanced Human Dynamics, which is sort of a more mature live event that teaches networking and relationship development and those types of things in different scenarios. You really only have a few things that you can take with you when you leave or do a, start something new. And net, my network, my relationships are saving my butt right now. So they, we all heard this sort of like, dig, your, dig the well before you're thirsty, you, your relationships are important, your network is your net worth, all these little cliches. But I just happen to be very lucky that I took my own advice early on and created all these relationships over the past 11 years. Because once I found myself on the outside of the company, I found that, yeah, you have whatever natural talent one might have. I don't feel like I have that much. I feel like most of it is skills that I built over the last decade and change. But then that's it. So unless you're going to do everything yourself, the only other lever that you have and the biggest lever that you have is your network and your relationships. So when people think, well, you know, I don't really need to do this right now or I don't have time to do this right now, it's actually fundamental. It's the most important thing that you can do is build and maintain those relationships. And you see entrepreneurs go, well, look, I don't even have a prototype yet. My website's not even up. Oh, I, don't, I need to do all these other things first. The network and the relationships that you build, this is not a bonus. It's not an add-on. It's not something where you can make up for lost time. This is the most important lever that you have. This is a fundamental skill set. So you don't have the luxury of deciding to put that spare tire in the trunk of your car after you get a flat. You have to dig the well before you're thirsty. And the thing is, nobody ever thinks they're going to be thirsty, Right, even the people who teach this stuff think, "Oh, well, you know, I'm just teaching it. I don't really have to do this." But you know, I I think there's a there's a nuance there which I think you're really good at, which is you have to learn what to say yes to and what to say no to. Yeah, that's because true. everybody wants to have 15 minutes of coffee with you, say, and so you have to like, how do you decide where where you're going to focus your networking efforts? And networking is almost a bad word. Like, it I, is, yeah, because 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 I consider us. Friends, it's, yeah, sure. I'm in your network, but, you know... Yeah, we're friends, but that's the way you should look at it. You know, that's the way we all should look at it. Um, making networking a relationship development, which is a less dirty word, it sounds less gross, right? Scalable is not that hard. A lot of other people won't build relationships because they think, I don't have that kind of time. I don't have time to do coffee with people four times a week. I don't have time to do all these lunches. You don't have to do that. Some of the really tiny habits that I have that I've been the strongest leverage in building and maintaining relationships. So for example, you, your audience will love this. You, you'll dig this. So every day around 9 or 10 a.m., I go on my iPhone. I don't need to pick up my iPhone. People know how these things work. You open up your text message app, scroll all the way to the bottom. These are the people that you met at some conference where you spoke two and a half years ago, and you got together with them and four other people for lunch at some cafe, and there's their, hey, I'm, I'm seated, guys. See you in five minutes. You text those people. 
and you say, hey, it's been a long time. It's James Altucher. What's the latest with you? No rush on the reply. I know everyone's busy. The reason that script's important, one, you got to sign your name because otherwise you get new phone who dis, right? Or like, oh, man, I'm embarrassed. I don't want to write this person back because I don't know who it is. I don't want to have to fish it out. So you sign it. That gets rid of that problem. And you say no rush on the reply because if somebody re- reaches out to me and it's been two or three years, I I think, okay, which is it? Is it Scientology or Herbalife, right? Like, what do you want? So if you say no rush on the reply, I know everyone's busy, or no need to reply, I know everyone's busy, it demolishes the urgency. And when you're trying to sell something, usually you're building urgency. You're not trying to demolish the urgency. So if you demolish the urgency, I've found and I've tested this, that it increases my response rate from about 35 40% to about 70%. Huh, that's interesting. So I'll do that four or five times a day. Maybe one out of four won't reply. And then you end up with two-minute conversations with these people you haven't talked to in a while. That's that's scalable. You can do that every day. I'm going to do that. Tomorrow I'm going to try that. Because here's, here's what I do, which is similar. I'll go the back- eight-year-old like, email? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll go back like five to 10 years on my emails, and I'll look at an email I never responded to, and I'll respond as if it was a second later. Yeah. <laughs> and that usually, they owe 100% response rate sure. to that. Yeah. The problem is you got to wait eight years or 10 years. Yeah. That's only that's the hitch. With this, you can text somebody you haven't talked to in six months if you have those, yeah. those recent texts in there. And I even do a similar one that this was inspired by you, actually, the, the exercise you just gave, or the, I don't know if you can call it an exercise, the, the anecdote you just gave. <laughs> but I call it email roulette, because I'll go in my email program, click compose, and this is our, just like the text thing, this can be done in line for coffee. Click compose, type in you know JA, and it's like James Altucher. And I'm like, oh yeah, I haven't talked with him in a li- long time. I'll send an, e- an, e- an email because it pops up as a suggestion in the compose window. So you you do that, it'll suggest five or six people in the dropdown. You just pick the one that you haven't spoken to in a while. And the reason you do both is because if you have someone's phone number, you have a level of intimacy with them where they trusted you with their number at one point. But with email, that could be anybody. That could be somebody who emailed you once that you met up with or that gave you something or that asked you a question and you can re-engage those people. And it, it's that time would otherwise be completely wasted. That's Instagram time. Right. That's when you're in line at Starbucks or whatever, and you're just thumbing through BS cat videos or funny posts and memes. The ROI on that is zero. The ROI on this engagement is not zero. You end up with all these kind of crazy opportunities. Like, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while. It's good to reconnect. By the way, I'm having a conference in Hawaii. You should come. We're looking for a speaker. That kind of thing really happens all the time. It's a numbers game. So if you do this to 100 people a week, what if one out of 100 has something worthwhile for you? Was it worth spending your coffee line time reengaging? Hell yeah. Yeah, it's, that's definitely true. So, uh, so that's a good one. I'm going to do it. Do it. Yeah, let me know how it goes. What's, what's next? <laughs> so I, I actually put a ton of these together in, uh, at advancedhumandynamics.com slash level one. I have 13 videos that are all things like this, but I'll, let me think of another one that makes sense that's really scalable and easy. And uh, pardon that plug, but I think it's useful if, if people are interested in these. Uh, I'll plug again, advancedhumandynamics.com. Yeah. yeah, and then you click level one, and then it sends you these videos to re-engage and do those kinds of things. Um, what else? Those are two really simple, really sort of infinitely scalable ways to systemize this. Another thing that I got from, do you know David Burkus? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he has a new book out called Friend of a Friend. Uh, great book, especially in a, made even better by the fact that... Uh, I'm in it. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a good book, but I am in it, which I love. I've never been in a book before, I don't think. So that was pretty cool. But he's got a really cool system where he calls I don't think this, that's true. I think I've seen your name. Well, by, by the way, huh. I, saw, I saw your brother's name in a book the other day. I don't have a brother. 
Well, who's AJ Harbinger? He's a guy who uses my name for branding. As You're not, kidding. I'm not related to him, no. Oh my gosh, because I think Shane Snow thinks that's your brother. He does, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. he's in dream teams. Yeah, no, I know. Um, Shane told me, he's like, oh, oops, it's in the book. Because Shane and I are good friends, and he was like, wait, what? That's so, so funny, because he's like a dating coach, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nope, not, uh, not related to him at all. Uh, so David Burgess has this thing where the system where he will go on Facebook and the Facebook algorithm, Facebook or Instagram, it puts people's life news towards the top of the newsfeed because that's what people are engaging with and interested in. And they will, he'll go, oh, okay, this person had a baby or got married. So instead of clicking like or writing a comment, he'll send that person a text or call them. So he'll up the level of engagement, but he doesn't have to figure out what's new in their life. He lets the algorithm do it for him. I do that as well. You do you? I, yeah. I don't like... Just saying, you know, oh, it's, you know, my son was born. <laughs> like, like, yeah. it seems so Trite. like zero dimensional. Yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll always send it, I'll either not like or I'll send a message. Yeah. 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 It's better. It's, I call this the engagement totem pole, right? You've got like a, a you got a like or some reaction, a comment above, and then above the fold is maybe a text or a phone call or maybe an email is like on the fold. Yeah. But above that is a text or an audio message or a video or a phone call and then in person if it's appropriate. So all these people are clicking like. You get 1,500 likes on your wedding photo or your, your child's birth. You get 800 comments. You're not reading those. Yeah. But the people who text and call you, you remember those people, right? You remember who those people are and then you you immediately stick out of the noise. Yeah, because people don't realize SMS texts in general have about a seventy or eighty percent um, response rate. Yeah, or, or seventy or eighty percent open rate as within opposed ten to minutes. I think it is too. Yeah. So it's like yeah, seventy or eighty percent within ten minutes, and then when you when you stretch it out to a whole day, it's probably like ninety nine percent or something like that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So um, all right, more. I'm more. Gonna, I'm, I'll keep, but now, now, what what are you learning from the neuroscientists? Like, tell me stuff you're learning from the guests. Yeah. So some of the amazing stuff that I'm learning from the guests. One of the, I recently had Annie Duke on. You've had, yeah, had on, Annie right? Duke on, yeah. So she's may, great. Maybe I won't go into that because you probably had a lot of the same information uh, from her. I'm trying to think. I think again, I'm really fascinated by the process of of learning, and so I think that's what I extracted more most from mm-hmm. uh, that podcast. But I'm curious what you did because again, what she. You know, there's the learning aspects of poker, but then then was when you're playing poker, there's kind of uh, managing the table, managing the people and the emotions at the table. So I'm just curious what you extracted from from her her book. Yeah, I I like her. the what I really liked from her was the idea that instead of well, she explained how beliefs are formed, right? How they're really formed and how we th- versus how we think they're formed. So the way we think beliefs are formed is well, I look at the evidence, I examine it. I collect it, I evaluate it, and then I form a belief based on that. But the way beliefs are actually formed is you see something and you immediately form a belief, and then you look at all the evidence that backs up the belief that you just magically created out of thin air, and then any evidence that is contrary to that, you look for ways to discredit or discard or ignore that evidence. Hmm. And that's super dangerous. Is that true? Like, it, or, it, like, or is she just saying that? No, it's true. That's okay. like how, that's like the science of belief is okay. we tend to pick a belief and then try to back it up and reinforce it to the exclusion of everything else. I guess it makes sense in terms of like how the brain evolves. So like if you pass, uh, a, if a caveman passed a bush that was rustling, it's not like you're going to logically try to figure out for a minute or two why is this bush rustling. You're you're just going to run because you're the first belief that might stick in your head is that there's a lion there. 
Yeah, exactly. So the, you're right. Yeah, it, it goes back to that sort of evolved patternicity where we look at things like that and we go, all right, well, 100% of people that have thought that something was a lion in a bush and wasn't are fine as a result. Right. But the one person or the group of people whose brains had evolved and go, well, there could be a lion in there, but I'm going to ignore that, many of them got eaten by lions. Right. right. So we've evolved this idea that we should immediately form a belief and then sort of back it up with other types of evidence. I don't really understand why we then try to ignore evidence to the contrary. I think it's just efficient, right? It's just efficient to pick one thing and then decide to stick with it. The problem arises when that information is actually important that contradicts that belief. And so Annie in her book, Thinking in Bets, she really goes into a lot of the uh, ways that she and other poker players try to mitigate this, which is the title of the book, Thinking in Bets. So you instead of going, well, I believe this now, you go, I believe this with 70% certainty. And then as evidence to the contrary comes into play, you don't have to then have your ego be right and reinforce that. You can go, oh, well, now I'm only 60% sure. All right, well, now there's overwhelming evidence to the contrary. I'm only 20% sure. So it's on a spectrum. It's no longer binary. So your your ego doesn't have any sort of attachment to that pre-existing belief because you didn't have it with 100% certainty. And that is really useful, not just in poker, but it's useful for making decisions in business. It's useful for relationships and things like this because you can find out to what extent you are certain about something and you can let that go or you can reinforce it depending on the evidence that you find. So so like, let's use the example of relationships. How would you use that? So if you're looking at this in relationships, let's say... Let's say you're looking for a, you made some new contact and you think, oh, I would love to do a project with this person. They seem trustworthy. Well, if you decide that person's trustworthy and that's your belief, then you might look at other evidence to the contrary. Well, I know other people have had negative experiences with them. Mm. Well, you know, but that person says a lot of things about a lot of people. So I'm going to ignore that. But if you said, well, this person seems trustworthy, I would give it a, I'm 80% sure, 85% sure that they are. Then when you get that contradictory evidence from somebody, you go, well, this person says a lot of things about other people. So maybe instead of being 100% trustworthy, they're 50% trustworthy. But that 50% that says, don't believe that other guy, well, that's got to figure into the equation now. It's no longer binary where I go, ah, that person's always saying negative stuff. Mm. I go, all right, well, I sort of believe them, so I'm going to apply that to this 80% trustworthy. Now I'm lowering it to 65, 70%. So you can apply the different evidence in a arbitrarily, mathematically arbitrary anyway, way, and you can start to lower or raise your level of certainty about something. And I guess even in a high stakes personal situation, like let's say in one of your situations where you've been kidnapped, you have to make an assessment on the fly. Okay, given what I've seen about this person, if I say X, Y, and Z, there might be a 10% chance they kill me and a 90% chance they look favorably, but you sort of have to think in probabilities yeah. instead of being sure. Yeah, I remember the first time that I was kidnapped in Mexico City, or was in Mexico City, and I remember being in the car and going, well, this is probably not, I'm probably not getting kidnapped, it's probably a misunderstanding. But then after a while, it was like, all right, how certain am I of this? You know, and then... And this isn't the conscious thought process. I wasn't going, oh, I'm thinking in bets now. But I, after a while, I went, all right, if there's even a 1% chance that this is a bad situation, I should probably react in a totally different way. And that was a realization that took me way too long to arrive at. And so had I thought of that before, earlier on, 
I it, the situation could have ended differently. Yeah, because I remember you said to me on the on our podcast about this. Uh, you said once once you got in the car, in most cases, once the victim gets in the car, right? You know, and is taken to the location. Yeah, it's, it's over. That's right, Gavin De Becker, who was uh, I think at one point like Oprah's bodyguard or something like that. Mm-hmm. He said. He told uh, me and a lot of other people for that matter because it was on TV, but he told me when I interviewed him as well, never go to the secondary location. And so, and if you have, if you find yourself already on the way to the secondary location, the earlier you fight back, the better of chance you have. How can you fight back then though? You, you should never, so if you're being taken, you, sh- you should fight immediately. It's not, this is not Liam Neeson where he's like, all right, you're going to be taken. Don't resist, you know, go with it. No, that is bad advice. You should resist immediately on the spot with everything that you have because the f- the longer you are in custody of somebody else, the further away they're taking you, the higher likelihood that you are where they control the context, the circumstances, the environment. They don't control, the weakest part of any abduction or any situation like this is where you are at the point of abduction. So does that make sense so yeah. far? So if you're on a street corner and somebody comes up and says, get in the van, die first. Don't get in the van. Don't get in the van and go, okay, I'm going to figure out what to do from here. No, you've already, you already have like an 80% fewer chance of surviving or getting out of this situation in one piece. You make that stand on that street corner. Somebody says, get in the car. Don't get in the car. Yeah. I don't care if they have a gun to you. That is their weakest point. They're They're maybe not bluffing. They might kill you on the street corner, but they're trying to get you to comply. That is their point of weakness. So, and this is, you can ask any sort of like military expert, I'm not one of those, but right then and there where they initiate that contact, that is where they are weakest. That is where you are actually strongest. But since they have the element of surprise, you're scared. And they might be stronger than you at that point. Exactly. It's just that they're weakest in the the narrative of the whole event. Right. They're weakest, but they still might be stronger than you and you're not used to that. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. So in the movie Taken, when she's being dragged out from under the bed by that guy, you, she should be kicking, screaming, fighting, all that stuff. Not just, all right, they're going to take you. You're not going to be able to do anything. You know, go with them, whatever. I don't remember if he had advice like that. But you, th- that was the point at which the, the girls should have resisted the most. So, okay, uh, uh, that almost seems like an extreme version of frame control. Yeah, right? maybe. Because they, you, you, who's got the frame there when they have the gun on your head? Yeah. And it's very hard to kind of take the frame back. So, like, no, I'm not getting in that van. But just remember, if they didn't just shoot you right there, they're trying to take you for a reason. So the benefit to them killing you on the spot is pretty minimal if they're trying to take you. So if you resist enough, they may injure you uh, and they might take you injured. Uh, It's possible that they will kill you right there. It's always possible. But there's a really good chance that that's not what they want to do and that you resisting right there is making their job hard or impossible. Mm. And if they're just looking to rob a random foreigner and you put up a big enough fight, they might choose somebody else because they're not expecting that. Mm. They might. You might You might just end up getting shot in the arm or the leg or the head and then you're a dead body on a corner, but it's better than getting your... It's better than ending up in a basement. Uh, uh, agreed. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, tell me some, some other neuroscience thing. I, I like all the latest neuroscience stuff. Sure. So, I did an episode with this guy, James Fallon. He's a brain researcher and uh, he was doing a control. I think it was like episode 27. He was doing a controlled experiment where he was researching psychopathy, just as part of another sort of type of experiment. And so he needed a control group, and I think he needed it in short order. And so he had his friends and family do brain scans. 
and he his assistant comes up and says, hey, look, we got a problem with the control group. One of the people in the group has a psychopath brain. And you can tell, I guess they light up differently or don't light up in certain ways uh, in the scanner, in the fMRI. And so he goes, oh, well, shoot. You know, we got to have a double blind, but since this is my friends and family, I want to find out which one of my friends is a psychopath and let them know that they need treatment. And I also want to know who it is so they can maybe treat them differently or maybe maybe I shouldn't trust them to house sit for me, something like that. Well, it turns out after they de-anonymized the study, the psychopath brain was his own brain. Oh my gosh. So he tells his wife and she goes, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And so he's the, the book is all these things he's done. It's him looking back on his life and going, oh yeah, now this all makes a lot more sense. So he's looking back on his college years, him meeting his wife, uh, things he's done with his family and friends, and him going, all right, this is the psychopath brain. And then he goes into a large study about uh, that he's spent years and years and years doing since. Why are some psychopaths, Dexter, where they're cutting people into pieces and throwing them overboard on a boat, and other psychopaths are like him, fully functioning, married happily with kids and professors at UC Irvine. Yeah, so what does it mean? Like a psychopath basically is like someone who purely thinks of their own needs without any empathy for others. Then without the biological ability to have empathy for others as opposed to like a narcissist who has the potential for empathy but for but because of past trauma doesn't really use that empathy. Yeah, there's differences. There are slight differences between sociopaths, psychopaths, and thing, things like that. And that's why sociopaths are a little bit worse in some ways for society because you look at them and they, they, know, they know right from wrong. They have a moral compass and they ignore it because of the abuse that they suffered as a child. Whereas a psychopath kind of doesn't really have that sort of sense of morality. This is according to him, and I, I could be butchering this, so I'll put a little asterisk next to it. They don't have that sense of morality. Doesn't mean they do bad things. If they had great parenting, they learn it a little bit manually, and they go, "Yeah, I'm. I'm not going to act like that. I'm not going to abuse people because they were not abused." So, this leads to all kinds of interesting questions for society. Because if you have a dangerous area, uh, if you have a hood, a ghetto, and people are fighting for survival, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of drug dealing and prostitution and street crime and violent crime. People who have psychopathic tendencies can turn into violent, malignant psychopaths as a result of that environment. People who grew up in war zones, they have that kind of trauma that turns their psychopathy into malignant psychopathy. But if you have psychopathic traits or a psychopath brain and you grow up in a nice, loving family, you might be a little bit reckless you might have friends that go, oh, man, you know, I can't hang out with you anymore. Every time we hang out, we drink too much, we gamble, you know, we do stupid stuff. We don't tell our wives we're coming home. You peer pressure me into stuff I probably shouldn't be doing. You're a nice guy, but I can't party with you on weekends anymore. And that's kind of as bad as it gets. So I don't know about you. I would much rather have somebody who gambles and maybe drinks too much and is a little bit reckless in my neighborhood than somebody who goes, yeah, I'm going to break into that person's house and, you know, kill their pets and steal their stuff because I don't care. You know, I, that's dangerous. So it's dangerous for society to have these kinds of environments because psychopathic brains exist in a sample of the population and we haven't bred them out because they have functions. And so he talks about the dangers to society, why some psychopaths are dangerous, others are not, uh, what we can be doing about this and maybe the function, theoretical function that psychopaths play in society that are a net benefit to society, which is why they still exist, and they, we haven't bred them out. Like, like what's a benefit? One of the benefits, if memory serves, was 
Uh, and you, you've heard this study before, right? A disproportionate number of corporate CEOs have psychopath brains or something like that. And I would like to see that research because I don't think I've ever seen proof of this. But you see people in C-suites supposedly have a, a disproportionate number of psychopath brains. There's some hypothesis that exists where maybe you need somebody who is willing to go and be a, a leader in that respect and not think about everybody's feelings and calculations in real time. And then you look at ancient societies and you think, all right, well, we need warriors that are going to go and mercilessly take care of our enemies. Uh, and that serves a useful function. And that parallels one of the dangers to society, which is if you have a soldier population or a, a warrior population, you end up with especially in third world countries, you end up with like, for example, a drug cartel. It's really useful to have a warrior brain if you're growing up in Guatemala because you have danger all around you. And then, of course, women need to be protected from that danger, so they pick dangerous guys. That's a function. It's not just her picking a bad guy. That might be the best guy she could pick when you live in a favela or something like that. Hmm. So, But the problem is, that breeds more warrior brains, which are then activated in the in that way because of the violence and the circumstances surrounding it. So you end up with these negative circumstances activating these warrior brains, breeding more warrior brains, and then you can't just go, let's clean this up and make a civilization again. You have a bunch of warrior brains that have these malignant pieces activated. So so how can we how can given that we know this, how can we kind of make use of this knowledge a little bit? Yeah. I mean like, how does he recommend making use of it? He had all these sort of sociological implications, but now I'm thinking maybe I should have my brain, my kid's brains scanned so you know, hey, look, some people need to be treated a little differently. Maybe there's some kid gloves that need to be put into play. Maybe you shouldn't let that person do MMA or whatever. You know, Maybe you shouldn't let them uh, go and backpack through dangerous places because maybe they're more susceptible. Maybe you shouldn't let them join the military. Maybe they'd be a really good soldier, but they're not going to be able to reacclimate to mm. society. Yeah. So he was suggesting starting with the military and testing in some perhaps cost-effective way because we're sending young guys off to combat. They don't come back. It, there's a potential for them to come back and not be able to turn the warrior brain off ever. Yeah. And so he's thinking in the future, maybe there's some PTSD or element of PTSD that isn't just called PTSD. Maybe it's not a disorder. Maybe this is warrior brain switches on and doesn't switch off because we don't know how to do that. Mm. Uh, that's interesting. I wonder, I, I thought maybe we were going to go in a direction of like there's some aspects of being a psychopath that are good. Like there's some situations where you don't want to have empathy and we should try to cultivate that a little bit more in those situations. Yeah, there are, there is business and war, but then getting them to be functional members of a civil, the type of civilization that we want, that's trickier. Mm. So it's hard to have somebody who goes off to war or does has with a psychopath brain and then comes back and goes, all right, I'm done with all that. I think we know how to turn it on now, but he's working on, all right, how do we figure out how to turn it off? Is it even possible? So it's so, it's so fascinating. Basically every guest, there's at least, like I find with every guest, there's at least two, three, four, five takeaways. I mean, there's many, many takeaways, but then I actually remember for the future, like for my own life, you know, one to five takeaways. Sure. So it's like when you read a book, you can't remember the entire book. I think I remember, like if I read a nonfiction book a year later, maybe I remember 1% of it, but still it's that like critical 1%. And now we've done all these podcasts. You remember so much from all these different people and 
Do you find your life to be just better? I mean, it's hard to compare because you don't know what it would be like otherwise. That's a good point, yeah. But yeah, of course. I mean, being able to go and ask someone who's a high performer or a famous athlete or a famous scientist, brilliant scientist, something that you always wondered about that their work has to do with, you're really getting... Should I pause while that thing... While the camera dies? You get a chance to ask these people something that no, you, you can't email Shaquille O'Neal and go, hey man, I got this random question for you that only you can answer. But now we get to sit in front of him for an hour, or hour and a half, and just fire away and have them teach us things and ask them smart questions, ask them dumb questions. And they're kind of our captive and they're humoring us this whole time. And if we do our job right, they actually enjoy it at the end. And he sounds like such an interesting character in the sense that he's so huge, you would think. You know, as you kind of alluded to earlier, he would think this this is a a monster on the court. Like he doesn't need to practice, but right. Shaquille O'Neal needs to to in order to be a, a high performing athlete, he's got to practice every day, or at least he did when he was you know playing. Yeah, exactly, so, exactly. Uh, uh, and that's like your your takeaway from that. It doesn't matter the genetics; it's you still gotta you're you're competing against all the other people with who are who've got the genetics and exactly. Yeah, if you want to be world class at something, like if you look at Howard Stern. He outprepares any other talk show host. And you have to do that. We have to do that too. You and I have to do that. We yeah. can coast on our natural ability that we've built over the last few years of interviewing, but then what? Then we're in like this middle cruft of interviewers where we're better than most, but not as good as the world class ones who actually put in the work. That's not really, I'm not into that. No, that's really true. So, so like Howard Stern's a great one to listen to because not only is he prepared, but it's really fascinating to see the dance he does with his interviewee to kind of get to the meat. Uh, often Howard Stern wants to get stuff that the other person doesn't want to reveal. And so you, you see this dance he does and it's just ingenious. He's just, I think he's the best interviewer in the world. Probably, yeah. And, and then I'm also fascinated by, by Joe Rogan. Like he's got such a conversational but likable style. That's how he draws the people in. And uh, you know he's one of my he's one of my favorite podcasters outside kind of the 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 normal interview format because he he sort of has a more panel format than mm -hmm. interview format. Uh, who are some of your your favorites? Uh, I used to really like Charlie Rose back in the day, but this is before <laughs> podcasts really. So I used to watch Charlie Rose all the time, and he's always shuffling his papers and turning around in his chair and things like that. You can tell that he's really prepared for these yeah. things, and. Now, I, you know who's good at this that's new to the game? Tom Bilyeu. You ever listen to him oh, yeah, in Impact yeah. Theory? Yeah, he's yeah. really good at it. And that's because he's really smart. He's prepared, but he's also really, he's thinking about the things that he's saying and listening to. Oh, I'll have to listen to him more. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, Jordan, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me, that, man. Everybody should subscribe to the Jordan Harbinger Show. We should do our our. We gotta do the yeah. Well, well, let's let's. I don't know whatever we did before we advertised on each other's show or yeah. something. Well, you would pick episodes from my show and I would pick episodes from your show, and I would ask you to tell me about them or or something like this. Yeah, I gotta look back at it. It's yeah. been so long. And uh, uh, and then also, what's the what's the website? JordanHarbinger.com. No, where what's, I'm the, at. what's oh, the AdvancedHumanDynamics.com, and then you click on level one, and that's where I've got all those networking drills and exercises. I've got like a dozen plus. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. Is there a charge? No, no, I'm it's gonna free. totally I'm gonna totally look at this. Do it. You'll see the and one of them that I got from you was the I can't I I, I called it I, I can't believe you called me technique. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I thought I took that and I wrote that in there and I was like, this is really good because 
you'd be surprised. Well, not you, but many people would be surprised. You read an article and you go, oh, I'm going to look this person up at the newspaper where they work and go, I really like this. This is really good. Where did you get that? And they go, like, half the time they do say, I can't believe you called me. Or, wow, I didn't know people read the author name on the article. Yeah. Thanks for the, the in, note. And I'll tell you what I use. In 2002, I started writing for a financial website. The very first day I was writing, um, I recommended some stock. It went up that day. People made money. Some guy sent me an email, like, good call. And he worked at like some Dallas-based hedge fund manager. And so I called him up right then. And he was, he survived. I can't believe you called me. And I ended up, uh, like a year later, his boss ended up investing in my fund. I stayed at his house. Wow. And, uh, you know, you build, it's, it's, it's a great technique. And it only took like a few minutes. Yeah. And people go, well, where do you get their number? In their email signature, most people have it if they don't work for a media business, yeah. even if they do half the time. Or you can go on the company website and call the main operator and say, hey, can I speak to James at the uh, finance desk? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, sure. Wh- who are you? And you leave your name and they ring him through because nobody uses the phone anymore anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, once again, Jordan, thanks so much. And I always was a listener of The Art of Charm and now The Jordan Harbinger Show. Thank okay, you very I hope much. you do another thousand episodes. That's the plan. Thanks. 